Right, we're having two readings this evening. The first of them is from Ezekiel chapter 34, which is on page 866. So Ezekiel chapter 34, starting at verse 20, which is at the bottom of page 866. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns, until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts, so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit, and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke, and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land, or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. And the second uh, reading we're having is from John chapter 10, uh, which is on page 1077. John chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 22, which is at the top of page 1077. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, simply tell us. Sorry, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Thank you, David. Good evening, everybody. Let me start by asking you, are you sitting comfortably? Are you feeling safe this evening? Quite comfy chairs, quite warm, uh, quite thick walls. Maybe slightly worried about some audience participating at the moment. It's not going to be any audience participation, don't worry about that. Um, but um, safety, it's a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal to all of us. We are safety-conscious people by nature. Being safe dictates a lot of the decisions that we make in our lives. How we travel, how thoroughly we cook our food, what part of town we live in, what sort of places we might visit. And it's embedded in the language that we use as well. We often like to play it safe, think safety first. Maybe at work you like to be known as a safe choice or a safe pair of hands for that task. We're always on the lookout for a safe bet and for something to be our safety net. We can be safe as houses. We can find safety in numbers. And we want to get home tonight safe and sound because it's better to be safe than sorry, isn't it? Even the adrenaline junkies among us, among you, the risk takers, I bet you still check your parachute three times, don't you? You check those ropes before you start climbing, just to be on the safe side. But there's a difference between feeling safe and being safe. Ideally, we want both. Yet sometimes, rightly or wrongly, there can be a contrast between what's going on inside us and what is happening around us. I expect there'll be different things for for all of us here tonight that make us feel unsafe when perhaps the evidence suggests really there's nothing to worry about. I don't know what it is for you. For, For me... Could be to do with your physical environment. Getting on a plane, that's what it does, does for me. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, I know the safety, I know the deal, I look at, around at every single other person on the aeroplane, but yet somehow I can't quite get to grips with the fact that we are 35,000 feet in the air in a giant tin can with wings. That's what, it, that, that's what it is for me. So it might be something different for you. It might be being in confined spaces that makes you feel unsafe or having too much space around you. Maybe it's being surrounded by too many people. Maybe not enough people. For others, it's, it's not so much to do with where you are, but who you are with that makes you feel insecure. Do these people I'm with really like me? Do they love me? If they really knew me, then I'm sure they wouldn't accept me. Do I really belong here? Safety matters, doesn't it? Feeling and being safe in life and in death rightly matters to us. And as we've been thinking about all evening, and as Rachel's been saying, our passage tonight is all about security. If you were here last week, then we finished a section where Jesus has been telling the Jews that he was the good shepherd, the one who would lay down his life to protect his flock. But the Jews are divided about what they think of him. Some say he's demon-possessed, a raving mad lunatic, and therefore not worth listening to. But others disagree. Others think there's something about this man that they want to keep 
listening to him. And tonight the story continues in a similar vein, but we've jumped forward a few months in time. So you'll see from from verse 22 that we're back in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. It's a festival that is more commonly known to us as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. So the Feast of Dedication, it was a comparatively new festival in Jewish history. It had been established in about 165 BC by Judas Maccabeus when the great temple in Jerusalem was reclaimed by Jewish hands from from Greek oppression, and it had been rededicated to the Lord. And unlike other festivals, you could celebrate it at the temple or you could celebrate it at home, as many Jews do today. The, The previous encounters that we've seen were with Jesus and the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes place at the end of the summer. But today we've jumped forward to wintertime. Feast of Dedication takes place in November, December. And we find Jesus in verse 23, walking, if you have a look with me, in Solomon's colonnade, part of the temple courts. Now, in the wintertime, this was a very common place for for people to meet because the, the colonnade was covered with archways that protected them from the cold winter winds. It's also, interestingly, the place where the first Christian believers would gather together, which you can find at the start of the book of Acts. Now, it might be that that John is trying to link those two things together here. It might be that he's trying to make uh, a sort of metaphorical point about the darkness of the winter. Jesus is the light of the world. Maybe John's trying to make that point to us again. He may well be doing that. But I think more simply what he's doing is saying that time has moved on, but the opposition of the Jews remains the same. Did you see what they say to Jesus in verse 24? The Jews who were gathered there, there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, we need to understand that question. That is not a friendly question. There is a hostility behind that question. It's more like they're saying to Jesus, How long will you keep annoying us with this nonsense? The old Wycliffe Bible translated like this. How long takest thou away our soul? You can kind of get this weariness, this aggression, exasperation in their voices. Like Jesus is just some bothersome nuisance that they want to get rid of. But you'll have seen from Jesus' reply in the next verse. So that question is completely inappropriate. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So the problem here is not that Jesus hasn't told them clearly who he is, but that they don't believe him. So he hasn't used the exact title of Messiah with the Jews yet, though you might remember that he did with a Samaritan woman at the well back in chapter 4. But he hasn't done with the Jews yet. And he's not done that because that title at the time would have been provocative. It would have created all sorts of political and military expectations of him that he was not going to fulfill. And it would have hindered, in his, hindered his ministry. So that's why he's not used that title with them explicitly. But he has clearly told them who he is in other ways. So the word Messiah just means God's anointed king. But the Old Testament uses all sorts of other descriptions to describe who this person would be. 
Sometimes I find visuals helpful to try and understand things. So have a look at this picture. Ah, it's quite small. Okay, what you've got there, five, just five Old Testament titles for who the coming Messiah would be. The light of all nations, the Son of Man, come from God the Father, I am, and shepherd. Five titles that the Old Testament uses of who this person would be. And if we skip on to the next slide, you don't have to spend too much time looking at this. Five verses, even from the past three chapters, where Jesus has used those titles of himself. Jesus very clearly told them who he is. That isn't the issue here. The question from the Jews is utterly unwarranted. And actually, far more than that, Jesus says, what I've done has demonstrated who I am as well. I mean, I guess anyone in theory could call themselves the Messiah, or the Son of Man, or the Good Shepherd, but they need to back it up, wouldn't they? They need to prove it by what they do. And that is what Jesus says here, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And once again, just for the sake of clarity, here's five descriptions, five things that the Old Testament foretold that the Messiah would do when he appeared. They said that new wine would flow. They said that the sick would be healed, that the lame would leap, that the hungry would be fed, that the blind would see. There are tens of others I could have picked. And here are five times when Jesus showed us who he was by what he did. There is no lack of evidence here for the Jews in understanding who Jesus is. He has said it, and he has shown it. And some people have believed him. The problem here for these Jews is that they refuse to accept who he is. So that begs the question, why is that? Why do the Jews not believe him? Well, it's because Jesus is threatening their safety. That's our first point tonight. I'm a big football fan. Um, some of you might know that I'm, I'm a Watford fan. Um, some of you might wonder how those two things go together, but um, we'll leave that to one side. Um, I read a great article on Friday about uh, an interview with a Watford goalkeeper, a Brazilian, Jorelio Gomez. He is an evangelical Christian, uh, someone who came from a Catholic background. And this is what he said about his faith. He said this, Religion is not important. Jesus is important to me. People think religion will change you. Jesus will change you. It is very important to me to follow him. Some people are in church, but they are not changed. Some people take religion to hide themselves, and when they are out of church, they behave the same. Religion doesn't change people. Jesus, when you accept him, will change you. Isn't that great, something he's grasped? Well, he's grasping that the Jewish leaders have yet to grasp. See, they feel secure in their lives because they've got their ways of doing things. They've been doing the same things for centuries, and they're happy with them. And for some, they've got their positions of authority as well, positions of power over the others, and they don't want to give them up. And they feel confident in, in death as well because of their status as the Jewish nation and because of their religious obedience. But it's a false security that they've got, and Jesus is disrupting all of that. 
those verses that we read from Ezekiel 34, they make it clear that, that part of what the Messiah, the good shepherd, would do when he came is to pass judgment over his flock. You might remember it said, See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. See, the Jews here, they're, they're feeling threatened by Jesus because they know that he's talking about them. He is saying to them, you think you are my sheep, but you are not. You feel that you are safe, but you are not. So what do they do? Well, typically when people are threatened, they do one of two things. You fight or you flight. So some people take the flight option, don't they, when they're threatened? Maybe you know some people who are like that with God. They're, they're running away from him. Maybe you feel that yourself sometimes. When you hear God speaking to you about something, when you sense him trying to disrupt your life in some way, then you run away, keep him at arm's length. You don't want to listen to him. That's one option. The other is to fight. And that is what the Jews are doing here. And we'll see more of it next week as their reaction goes on. The Jews are angry with Jesus, and so they're trying to get rid of him. And again, if we think about our world around us at the moment, it feels a bit like that now. It feels like the world is trying to get rid of God, particularly the Christian religion. It's like it's the next great thing on the list of oppressors of the people, isn't it? It's like people were saying, we've, we've had a go at slavery, we've had a go at racism, we've had a go at sexism, and now it's time for religion to meet its end. Time to overthrow God. Jesus does threaten our safety, but it's a wonderful thing he does because however safe we feel in life and death, really, away from him, that is no safety at all. Jesus is calling to the Jews here and to us today that the only way to be safe in life and death is to follow him. That's the other option. You don't have to fight. You don't have to fly. Instead, you can follow him. To follow the only one who can make us feel safe and actually be truly safe. That's our second point tonight. True security guaranteed. Because Jesus goes on to give the most wonderful promises of security to those who listen to his voice. There are three things I want to pick out for us tonight. Three things from these verses that we'll look at in turn. Firstly, if you follow Jesus, then he knows you and has called you. He knows you and has called you. That's there in verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This year, my, my wife Sarah and I, we've been in enjoying watching the BBC adaptation of Les Miserables. I don't know if any of you have been uh, watching it. I'm not quite sure enjoyed is the right word, actually. Um, it's pretty relentlessly bleak. Um, quite longing for some songs at some point to break things up a bit. But, um, but it is a glorious, glorious story of redemption and grace in the midst of despair. One of the very many powerful moments at the end is when our hero, Jean Valjean, he's, he's left his adopted daughter, Cosette, and her new husband, without telling them where he's moved to. Because despite the, the many great acts of kindness he has done, he still thinks of himself as a criminal. 
who they couldn't possibly want to have in their lives, knowing what he's done in his past. But instead, they manage to find out where he's gone and seek him out because they want to be with him. And he's utterly overwhelmed that they would do that. The author, Victor Hugo, writes this at one point. He puts it like this. The supreme happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. Loved for ourselves. Say, rather, loved in spite of ourselves. We all long to be loved like that, don't we? It's the sort of love we crave from our parents, from our our siblings, from our closest friends, from our spouses. But even as much as we, we might be loved by our nearest and dearest, even they won't know everything about us, will they? They won't know the, the depths of our hearts, the secret things we've done, the, the thoughts that we sometimes have. But God does know all of that. He knows everything. And yet he comes for us in love. Isn't that the remarkable thing that we see here? And notice as well that it, it isn't even just that he, he sticks with us because he loves us. He knows what, what we're like and he carries on anyway. No, it's that he knew all about us and he came to find us first. Did you see that? He knows us and he calls us. So do you see how that truth is, is a brilliant antidote to that insecurity that I suspect a lot of us might feel at times? Will people still really like me if they know me, if they know about my past? Can God really love me as I am? Well, this verse says, God knows you and has called you to follow him. So you can listen to him and be entirely safe with him. That's the first thing from these verses. Secondly, Jesus has given you the gift of eternal life. He's given you eternal life. You see that in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It feels like Christmas a long time ago. I don't know what you think about Christmas, but it's always a fun time in our family. People are very generous. They give, give us lots of presents, particularly the kids get a lot of presents at Christmas. Very, very kind of them. But, but, sometimes people give our children things that they just don't need. So part of our role that we've taken on as parents is at that great present exchange moment is to try and kind of filter some of the presents that they get given. Um, they, you know, they unwrap them. We say, wow, isn't that kind? And then we kind of snatch them away just before they unwrap them to go into what we call our re-gift cupboard at home. <laughs> that's what we do at Christmas. Um, now, that's a slightly silly example. But, but for those of us who are Christians, I think we can sometimes think like that, can't we, about, about faith, that, that somehow that promise that God gives us of eternal life. We, we know it's a gift, but maybe we think it's going to get snatched away from us. Maybe somehow, because of what we do, our unworthiness, knowing how sinful we are, we, we doubt it. Can it really be true? It can be our internal emotions that make us think that, can't, can't it? But there are external things as well, external factors that, that can threaten that sense of security. I guess it's probably fair to say that, that 21st century Cambridge is generally anti-God, isn't it? So maybe people at your college or at your workplace, they'll say to you, God is not real. 
There is no eternal life, and following Christ is a gigantic waste of your time. Maybe you're feeling that threat keenly at the moment. Maybe you're worried about that threat tomorrow, on Monday morning. Even my six-year-old son, Tom, has had a classmate say to him that God isn't real. Six years old. It can be hard, can't it, to face that kind of opposition on a regular basis. And there are spiritual forces as well in the world that, that would love to draw people away from security in Jesus. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And even within the church itself, there are threats. What the Bible describes as wolves in sheep's clothing. False teachers who look like they're leading people faithfully, but actually they're leading them astray. Just as there were opponents to Jesus then, there are opponents to his followers now. And that's why it's great news for us that eternal life is a gift from God that no one can snatch away. It's a gift that we learn elsewhere in the New Testament that is confirmed by God the Holy Spirit who comes to live within every believer. The New Testament puts it elsewhere that he is a deposit who guarantees our future inheritance. And how do we remind ourselves then of that gift when we feel threatened? Well, it's by looking to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate proof that we have that we will never never perish. It's what Jesus said earlier in chapter 10, you might remember it, that one of the marks of being the true true Messiah was that he would lay down his life for his flock only to take take it up again. That's what he said he was going to do. And 2,000 years later, we can look back and we know he's done it. It is finished. That's why we can look back and know it's not going to be snatched away because it's been done. So true security is guaranteed because Jesus has given us eternal life. And the last thing just to pick out is that if we follow Jesus, then we belong to God. That's there in the last couple of verses. John writes, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, really, this is the clincher. This is the final word on why we are safe with Jesus. Far greater even than Jesus giving us the gift of eternal life is the fact that we, if we follow Christ, have been given to him as a gift. Bound up in these verses, we get a glimpse into God as Trinity, one God in three persons. And it is vitally important for us to grasp Jesus, God the Son, has given his followers eternal life as a gift, secured by the Holy Spirit. But God the Father has given Jesus, his followers, as a gift. And there is absolute agreement between those two things, because you can see in verse 30 that Jesus makes the most staggering claim that he's made so far, that he and the Father are one. They are one. They are one in power. They are one in purpose. And they are one in nature. He's equating himself with God. It's a statement that, as we'll see next week, a statement that makes his Jewish opponents even more angry. But it's a statement that should make his followers feel even more secure. Because belonging to Jesus means we belong to God. It's moving simply from being the flock of the good shepherd to being the family 
of the Lord God Almighty. Jesus gives eternal life to those that the Father has already given him. They are united completely in decision-making, and they are equally trustworthy in faithfully keeping their promises. That's what it means for Jesus and God to be one. There is no illustration I can give you that quite captures the beauty, the, the confidence that we can have in being bound up in Christ. There is no greater security than belonging to God because he is the almighty God. He is the sovereign creator. As verse 29 puts it, he is greater than all. Who could possibly snatch us from his hands? He lives in us and we live in him. There is no taking us away from Jesus and being put in the re-gift cupboard. It can't be done. If we follow him, then we are his forever. So let me ask you again, how safe are you feeling this evening? Whether you're a believer or not, let me encourage you tonight to see how gloriously secure you can be in life and into eternal life when we follow Jesus. And let me leave you with just a final challenge just to think about. Perhaps at the start you were thinking about things in life that make you feel unsafe, things that make you feel insecure. Let me encourage you from these verses to see how, how being safe in Christ can help you to feel safe in the whole of life. Knowing we belong to God it can help us to face whatever challenges or temptations or threats that might come our way. It doesn't mean that we should take foolish risks. I'm not suggesting you go home and drive on the wrong side of the road. But it does mean that we can try to, to combat those times, those places, those situations, those thoughts that make us feel insecure and remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Because when we follow Jesus, we are always on the safe side. Let me pray as we finish. Lord God, you know that we are a people who can often feel unsafe in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of situations. Things external to us and our internal emotions and insecurities. Lord, thank you that in Christ we have absolute security in life and in death. And Lord, may you encourage us this week to know that security and to feel that security more and more keenly. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.